Well, if you keep your Bibles open to uh, Mark chapter 9, if you're new with us, we've been moving through the book of Mark. We're just preaching our way through, and uh, this is the next section we're looking at. I want to start off by asking you to imagine that you are uh, you're downtown Spokane somewhere. Perhaps you're in the, in the park or you're at uh, a bus stop, and you see a man standing there, a young man, and you notice that on his left forearm he has a tattoo of a guillotine. It's a very nice tattoo, kind of gothic looking. And as you're kind of observing him, you notice also that he's got a chain necklace and there's a medallion there. And, and you look and you see that it's a guillotine as well. And then you notice that the girl who's with him, she has these dangly little earrings and they're actually two little guillotines. At this point, you kind of just blurt out, hey, what's with, what's with all the guillotine stuff? And the girl says, oh, I just got them. Do you like them? Aren't they cute? And the guy holds out his forearm and says, yeah, look what it says below in Latin. It says, my hope, right below the guillotine. And you start to look, and then they start to talk about how the guillotine is what their life is all about, and that's where their hope is, and they're just trying to live more guillotine-centered lives. You'd probably get sort of an awkward grin and kind of walk away and think, man, they need some help. <laughs> this is crazy. Now, I, I, I tell this silly story to highlight how shocking and weird Jesus' talk of dying on the cross and calling them to the cross, the disciples, how, how this would sound, how shocking and weird. If, if you were with us, in chapter 8, he began to explain that he was going to the cross to die and call them to follow, and it freaked out the disciples. Peter even rebuked Jesus, tried to tell him he was wrong. We forget that talking about crucifixion is like speaking about the guillotine or the electric chair, but it's a hundred times worse. It's a form of horrible, humiliating, torturous, capital punishment. We forget how extreme that is because we wear it in, in jewelry and we talk about it as cute and fashionable. It's not. It's horrible, the cross. Jesus' teaching just sounds wrong and crazy to the disciples. So they, they reject it straight out. So much so that even when Jesus goes up onto the mountain in the next scene and he's glorified and his brilliance as God just radiates through and Elijah and Moses appear in the sky as a testimony to his words and then God speaks from heaven and said, this is my son, listen to him. Even after that, this is what we read in the beginning of our text. For they went out from there and passed through Galilee and did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. He's emphasizing it again. And when he is killed, he will rise after three days. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. They still can't get their minds around it much less their hearts. And really, Jesus compounds their confusion here because here he uses the image of the Son of Man, that one from Daniel who's going to rise to the throne to the Ancient of Days, an image that he says that he is fulfilling. And not only does he say he's going to die, but note that he says he's going to be delivered. 
into the hands of men. Uh, the, the grammar is sort of the, uh, the divine passive. It's demonstrating that God is doing the delivering. God is actually going to hand him ho- over. It's not that Jesus is going to come and maybe fight the Romans, but it's not going to go well, and he's going to lose and get crucified. No, he's going to be handed over, and he's going to hand himself over. They just don't understand this. How could this be? How, how could this fit with messianic victory and reign? The Greek here for their lack of understanding is, uh, is the word ignorance. It just completely escapes them so much so that they're even afraid to ask. It's kind of like the whole you know, guillotine jewelry thing. You know, you just, it's, it's too weird. It's, they just want to walk away and pretend Jesus didn't say that. Now today, as I said, the idea of Jesus being crucified is common. Cross talk rolls off our lips as normal language. We sing about it and we actually do wear crosses or have them tattooed on us. But I want us to consider this morning that we might have a lot more in common with these mystified disciples than we think. I want to challenge each of us to consider whether we fully get it, whether we really understand the cross. Yes, we know about it. Yes, we believe it happened. We know it's our salvation. But do we really understand what it means for our lives functionally, the cross? Because this is where Jesus goes with the rest of this passage. He moves from speaking about the impending event of the cross to speaking about what it means for their lives, to talking about what it means in their discipleship. It's kind of like he's he's like, I I can't get to you this way. I'm just going to talk this way about what it means at the ground level. And that's what this section, these next sections in our text, they kind of look like three different completely desperate sections where you're like, what is this? This is actually Jesus teasing out what it means to have a, a cross life cross living. And the first aspect that he brings up here is what I like to call gospel greatness. If you truly understand the cross and you're living in light of it, you will pursue gospel greatness. Look at verse 33. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? And they kept silent, for on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. So the disciples and Jesus arrive at Capernaum, probably at Peter's house. They've actually excavated, if you go to Capernaum there, what they think is Peter's house. It's still there. And Jesus asked them about their discussion along along the way, as if he didn't know. And, uh, And they are silent Suddenly, they're completely silent. It's like when I walk in to my living room and, and the TV's on and it suddenly changes and I say to the kids, what were you watching? And suddenly, none of them can talk. <laughs> you see, during this whole time that Jesus has been teaching them about his betrayal and death, they've actually been having a discussion about which of them is the greatest. I mean, this shows the complete disjunction. This shows they totally don't understand what he's saying. And and how insensitive of them. Think of that. Jesus is saying, guys, 
I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going to die. And they're saying, yeah, yeah, I'm going to have a better throne than you. I mean, they're arguing. I, I would love to have heard their arguments for who, why they were the greatest, right? You know, you're, I'm way more humble than you. What would they have said? Jesus must have been cringing as he overheard their, their debate, you know? This ragtag bunch of fishermen that he has, by sheer grace, grabbed a hold of and, and dragged them into the kingdom, who can't seem to get it, even though he's doing miracles in front of them and he's teaching them with inside teaching and he's fulfilling prophecy in front of them and they still cannot see it because they have such hard hearts. They're so spiritually blind. Are arguing about which one of them is the greatest in front of their incarnate Savior. And as readers, the temptation is, is to mock them just to go, what is wrong with those guys? But the truth is we need to recognize ourselves. This is us when we don't get the cross. This is us when we lose sight of the cross. Pride and, and position and status, it's right there. The priorities of the world, the pride of the flesh, it just rises right up to the surface and we're all about our own greatness. Even, it, 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 although it'll be in a, in a Christianized form, won't it? We, we see it in the church everywhere. People wanting ministry positions and leadership because they're ambitious for power and status. They want to be looked up to and want to be listened to. We even have this tendency to exalt pastors and winsome speakers who have numerous degrees. And if they've published or they have a podcast, ooh, then, then we want to, you know, celebritize them, make them our brand. And we see Christian brothers and sisters saved by grace, looking down on each other because of different statuses in life, whether it's economic or educational, and then grouping up into cliques, and people feeling like so-and-so is not really at their spiritual level because they don't, you know, they're not theologically well-read, which means they're not reading the same books that I'm reading. And then, of course, there's the classic pride over spiritual gift giftings or prophetic powers or special tongues or musical abilities. It goes all the way back to Corinth. And when this is the way it is in the church, think how exacerbated that is as we go out into the world and into the workplace. We end up competing in the workplace with just as much ruthless selfishness as any unbeliever, quite often justifying it as a testimony to our Christian pursuit of excellence. I saw this firsthand when I worked in the financial industry in Chicago. Guys willing to just cheat each other. Guys that were calling themselves Christians. And, would, and what does Jesus speak into this pursuit of greatness amongst his disciples that's just like the world? What does he do? Well, he offers true greatness. Real greatness, gospel greatness. Verse 35, and he sat down. So picture him there, the rabbi sitting down to teach, looking up at all of them. And he called the 12 and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. 
He says, hey, you want to be first in my kingdom? You need to be last. You want to be at the top? You need to go to the bottom. You want to be great? You must be servant of all. And when you're servant of all, you're the bottom servant, aren't you? This is the economy of the cross life that he's calling them to. Remember the Philippians 2 passage? By the way, that passage just parallels the teaching here. But what does it teach us? It teaches, you know, Jesus, in his heavenly majesty, descends not only down to this world, but to the depths of the cross and to the grave to serve us for our salvation. And thus he's exalted by the Father, and every tongue confess he is Lord. It was a descent into greatness. And then he gives this very practical illustration of what he's saying. In verse 36, he takes... This child is probably one of Peter's children, right? And he places the child in the midst of them. And he says, and remember, in their culture, and a lot like today, the children were the lowest. They had no status. They had no power. They had no wealth. They could not help you achieve your greatness in any way. They were the very bottom. And he says to them, whoever receives, that is, takes care of, serves, cares for such a child, receives me and the one who sent me. Here is gospel greatness in its purest form. Serving the least, the lowest, the most helpless, who can offer you nothing for their good, for their salvation. Now, I know a chi- the child here that he's bringing is an illustration of the lowliest, but, but I have to say, as I picture Jesus holding this child before them, I can't help but think of our, our nursery workers. Back there, changing diapers and wiping noses, missing out on the singing and fellowship. Gospel greatness. And I can't help but think of the children's church workers right now trying to put together a program, even with all this COVID craziness, trying to put together the protocols so that there can be a program for our children. Gospel greatness. By the way, they need some help. And I can't help but think of our King's Club workers creatively and energetically and patiently working with the kids of this neighborhood for their spiritual good. And if you've been part of that ministry, you know how hard it is. It's gospel greatness. I can't help but think about our junior and senior high interns and workers, young adults who, according to the world, should be all about themselves at this time in their lives, enjoying their freedom and partying and building their careers, but they're serving those considered lesser than them. Gospel greatness. And I can't help but think of those striving day in and day out behind the scenes trying to get the Maddie's Place ministry started off off the ground to help the drug-affected newborn babies and their addict, addict mothers that are all around us, but we don't even know about them because they are the least of the least, the bottom. Gospel greatness. And I can't help but think of the foster and adoptive families in our church that are taking in orphans some of them very hard, and giving their whole life to serve them for their good. Gospel greatness. And again, it's not 
just about children, is it? about the least and the lowest. Think of our missionaries serving in, in Niger and Indonesia and Peru. We're going to have our, our missions weekend next week to think about what they're doing. Think about what the Tangways did in Nepal, the least of them. Gospel greatness. And what a clear witness to the world of the nature of our salvation of the, of the cross work of Christ who came and condescended to come and die for those who are completely helpless to save themselves for us. So the basic application question off this point is, are you pursuing greatness in your life? Gospel greatness. How are you doing that? Who are you serving? It's part of the cross life that we are called to. But gospel living, or cross living, I should say, is not just about gospel greatness. There's, there's another gospel thing here that we see in this next section of our text, and I've titled it Gospel Tolerance. Look at the next section, starting in verse 38. Remember, it's just flowing through. This is all one conversation. Verse 38, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him. Because he, he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. So John and the disciples were apparently out doing their ministry work. And they saw this guy casting out demons in the name of Jesus. Now I'm sure this got their attention and I'm sure it stung a little. Why would it sting a little? Remember last week? They were trying to cast the demon out of the boy, and none of them could do it, and the scribes and Pharisees came along and were giving them a hard time about it, and the whole crowd gathered to watch their failure, and Jesus had to take over because they had no faith. But this stranger out here, he's got it down. He seems to have a lot of faith. We don't know who he was. Obviously, he was part of the broader group of people following Jesus, one of the crowd, not one of the official 12. So John very dutifully informs Jesus how they tried to stop him. And note that he says tried. I think they probably failed at that as well. Now, at one level, this is very understandable from this, this behavior from John. I mean, there's, there's such thing as false teachers and false prophets and those people doing things in the name of Jesus uh, for their own promotion, and we need to be discerning. Jesus even says in Matthew 7, 20, that many will claim to prophesy and cast out demons in my name, but in the end, he'll say to them, I don't know who you are. Depart from me. But that's not what's going on here. John isn't worried about the name and glory of Jesus. And the giveaway is the end of verse 38. And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. You see, the disciples have made their litmus test for authentic Christianity. Not only faith in Christ alone and his work on the cross, but also whether you're part of their group. Whether you belong to their circle. 
It's funny, the church hasn't even been founded yet, but they've already made a little denomination. An inside group of real believers. Never mind the fact that Jesus had told them that they basically have no faith. Never mind the fact that they are blind who it really is and they don't understand the cross. No, they are the real thing and everybody else is suspect. This is just so real. It's so us. You know, one of the biggest problems on the mission field today is that missionaries, as they come to a mission organization from all their de- different denominations, when they get to the field, can't work together because they have disagreements about, you know, the end times or modes of baptism or ways of schooling their children. They can't get it together for the gospel. And where did they learn that divisiveness and inability to compromise for the sake of the gospel? Right here at home, American-made, where we have all our individual church silos working away like we're the only real church in town. Always suspect. Suspect of those crazy charismatics. God couldn't use them. Or those extreme Calvinists. They don't even have the spirit couldn't use them, those liberal Episcopalians, those fundamentalist Baptists, those seeker-sensitive sellouts. They need to stop. Man, this is convicting to me. I do this. God can't work through those guys. They don't even exposit the text right. I'll tell you what, it's a good thing he can work through those guys who are sinful and messed up and have misunderstandings, theological misunderstandings, because it means he can work through me. And us. And we do it even in our church, don't we? Having our own little pet theological or political things that we sort of test everybody by. That litmus test. We've all been in that conversation, right? You just meet somebody, they're two minutes into a little conversation in the fellowship hall, and then there's that question. That litmus test question that might have to do with some pet theology they have, and you're thinking, oh, I better get this right. What does Jesus say to all this? Verse 41. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. He says, hey, if someone gives you a cup of water in my name, much less casts out a demon, you can assume he or she is with us, that they are the real thing, and that they will receive their reward in the end just like you. This doesn't mean that we shouldn't be wise and have theological standards, but it means that we must keep the gospel high first and primary, with no compromise, and hold everything else as loose as possible. We must have high gospel tolerance. Remember, the the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. We need workers. We need brothers and sisters. We need to stick together for the gospel. When the disciples saw this guy casting out demons, what should they have done? They should have praised God, and they should have asked him for some tips. Let's work together. Teach us. 
How are you doing on gospel tolerance in your life? What's that thing you kind of use as a litmus test to suss out whether you will fellowship with a brother or sister? Whether you think someone's the real thing? What would Jesus think of that test? This is very important, gospel tolerance. In fact, look at the warning that Jesus leaves them with. Look at verse 42. And by the way, remember, in the Greek, no paragraph headings, no split. This is one conversation, the very next sentence. In fact, let's start at 41 and read through. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, or the word is to stumble, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Who are the little ones that are being caused to stumble here? The little ones who believe in Jesus. Well, it's the one bringing the cup of water, isn't it? It's the nobody Christian naively casting out demons. You know those guys were brand new believers. They had to be. Those perhaps less informed in their faith, less taught, because they haven't had the privilege maybe you've had. Jesus says, don't you dare in your suspicion and doubt cause them to stumble. How do you think, how do you think this man felt who was casting out demons when the disciples shouted him down? Do you think he felt encouraged? Discouraged? You think maybe they caused him to stumble? How's your gospel tolerance? It's very important. Now, there's one more aspect of cross-living that we see here, and I've titled it Gospel Judgment. Jesus, having warned them about causing others to sin or stumble, now focuses their attention on their own sin or stumbling, and it's here that he calls for radical intolerance. Tolerance towards that brother or sister. You want intolerance? Verse 43, here it is. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter this life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus is saying that a person who understands the cross, who lives in light of the cross, understands sin and judgment. They understand that Jesus went to the cross to pay for our sin, that on the cross he took all the punishment, took our hell to bring us salvation and life, and thus they take sin in their life very seriously and will do anything to eradicate it, to cut it out of their lives. No, he's not actually calling them to maim themselves, to be cutting off appendages. It's hyperbole to to stress real-life radical action because our sin is expressed in what we do with our hands. And our sin is expressed with where we go with our feet. And our sin is expressed in what we look at with our eyes. 
where we take radical action to eliminate sin in those areas of our life. I know families that have restricted, restricted uh, the screens in their homes to one kind of public area. My family ha has done this. Even the little screens, right? They got to be in that one part of the home where everybody can see them. There's built-in accountability. You might not think that's very radical, but my kids do. Be careful what comes before our eyes. I know men that only use dumb phones, the old phones that don't have the, the screens on them where you can get images because they're very serious about the temptation of what comes before their eyes. And so they're neglecting all the new technology. They can't even see the football highlights. I have friends that have quit their jobs because of the places that it demanded they go. Uh, places that were full of temptation, so they, they cut off their foot, see. You see, gospel judgment is not about out there. It's not about judging others or the world. It's about in here. It's about a radical self-judgmentalism. We see this emphasized in those last verses about salt and fire, the ones that are weird and people always wonder about it. But let's take a look at verse 49. As he, as he calls them to all that cutting off and all that self-judgment, he says this, For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Do you know what salt and fire are images of in the Bible? Judgment. Everybody knows fire is, because, you know, they call down fire from heaven on people. But salt is also an image of judgment. Lot's wife was turned to salt. In Deuteronomy 29, God speaks of how they bring judgment on the land, and the land will be salted so that nothing grows. And then he references Sodom and Gomorrah as that happened to them. So Jesus says, everyone will be salted with fire. Everyone will be judged. Of course, in the last judgment... But many scholars think he's also talking about the fiery trials that, that Peter talks about that come upon our lives as a refining judgment. That's why he says, salt is good. We need it. It motivates holiness. It refines us. That kind of judgment. But if it's lost its saltiness, if it's lost its effect in our lives for whatever reason, what are we to do? What does he say? Have salt in yourselves. Judge yourselves. Look inside and examine and cut out what needs to be cut out. Forget intolerance towards others. Be intolerant here. Consider what you're doing, where you're going, what you're viewing, and get radical. And look at the result. Look at the end of verse 50. Have salt in yourselves. Be judging yourselves. And be at peace with one another. Isn't that interesting? The disciples were struggling with each other. Who's the greatest? They're struggling with the, the outsider who's threatening their, their status, they're trying to push them down, and Jesus says, deal with your own sin. Have salt in yourselves 
and the relational issues begin to work themselves out, right? Deal with the in here, and the out there begins to work. This is cross-living. This is what it looks like to follow a crucified Savior. Gospel greatness, being a servant to all for the sake of the gospel. Gospel tolerance, striving at unity and working together for the sake of the gospel. Gospel judgment, having no tolerance for sin in our own lives, radically cutting it out for the sake of the gospel. We talk about the cross. We wear cross earrings or whatever we wear, tattoo, or we sing about it. But will we understand, do we get what the cross really means for Christ and for our lives? My prayer is that as we journey with the disciples and their eyes are more and more opened until they come to fully realize that, that would be our journey that we'd come to have lives that are really defined by our crucified Savior. Let's pray. Father, thank you that the cross was, was finished by your Son for us. Thank you that that is not our work. But may we follow, may we live that out. Help us by your Spirit to live that out in our lives. Pray these things in the power of your Son, Jesus. Amen.